Hello, 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 associates. Yes, this is free association. No, this is not the name you normally hear at the beginning of the show. This is not J.D. Bunkus. This is Donovan Bennett. J.D. Bunkus, as you know, is one of the tandem that is a part of Good Show from 1 to 4. Uh, it is a very good show, along with Ben Ennis. He is focusing on that show, making it even better. And so you can get his basketball takes there on SN590, The Fan. In this space right now, this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We are going to talk to two basketball names that you know and love, two basketball names that are entrenched in basketball in both the city that I'm currently in, Toronto, but also this country in Canada. Rowan Barrett, the leader of the national program, and Tyler Ennis, who's led the team on the court and is now playing in Europe after his stint in the NBA for Fenerbahce. We're going to have a conversation about the international game, both pro and domestic, and we're going to get into how that impacts basketball in Canada. But first, let's talk to Rowan Barrett about that team, the national team, qualifying for the World Cup in China. That's right. We are going in 2019, which gives us a shot to go to the Olympics the year after. Let's talk to the man who designed this team, Rowan Barrett. So mission accomplished for Canada. They come into Brazil and they win it 94-67. And look at the joy for Canada. You'll be able to start booking those flights in March once you know where you're going. It's a 32-team World Cup. Took a tough shot the other night in Venezuela and they have bounced back in style. Just a thorough beating of Brazil tonight in Brazil. And now we are joined by a man who has planned for this day, dreamt of it, probably schemed for it. And now the program is there. It's not just about talking. It's about kind of celebrating and looking back for us. Canada is going to China. The program literally got it done from NBA players to NCAA players to former U sports players. Rowan Barrett joins us. And what was it like watching the team qualify in Brazil? No, I mean, it was phenomenal. Obviously, there's a mix of emotions, but, you know, I think obviously there's also a, a resolve, you know, and a, and, a, and a feeling that the sacrifice that these players and staff have shown, 35 of them over the, all of the windows, from high school players up to NBL players to U sports players to G League players to NBA players, European League players um, has been phenomenal. You know, three different head coaches through the time frame. Uh, it's not been easy, but to win, not only win, but win by 27 points on the road in a hostile environment, I think also speaks to the grit um, and the mental toughness that was within this group. Uh, I mean, a, a cultural uh, experience here, phenomenal, that's kind of sifted and made its way through all of our teams. And so we're very, very excited. So for the uninitiated and who are jumping on the bandwagon late, explain to them the process of qualifying because it was different and a unique challenge for the program this year for the World Cup, what used to be the World Championships, in comparison to what it was before. Tell them a bit how FIBA has made this a little bit more of a difficult challenge for a program such as Canada. Well, to qualify, normally you'd have kind of an end-of-summer tournament each year in a four-year cycle, and you'd qualify, you try to qualify in the first year for the World Cup, and you play that tournament in August, one tournament, 
and then you play the World Cup in the second year of the cycle at the end of the summer. Third year of the cycle, you go to qualify in one last-ditch tournament in the summer, in August normally, for the Olympics. And then the fourth year of the cycle, you play the Olympics. They've completely changed it now. They've made it more of a, you know, kind of a FIFA soccer model where, you know, you're playing uh, home and away. You know, you're playing, uh, you know, games during the year, all through the year. And so they've changed it now to having games in November, February, June, and September. And so, for the most part, you have to play kind of without your NBA players. And uh, you're also now having to pull players away from their teams who are not all breaking necessarily and having games right up to the last moment. Um, so it makes it a very difficult, arduous task to put players together uh, during their season to come and play for us. Some leagues like the Euro League almost completely closed the doors to you having players to playing for you during that time frame. So very, very difficult, very challenging. But the depth of the talent, like if you are a nation that has not been doing the work to build out the depth of your players, all the way down through to the young ages, you are going to suffer um, during this uh, this new iteration where you have two years of qualification games and then on the third year of the cycle you have the World Cup and then on the fourth year of the Olympics. So uh, if you don't, and if you do not qualify for the World Cup, you don't have an opportunity at all to go to the Olympics. So the teams that don't make it through here to qualify for the Worlds, they'll lay dormant for two years waiting for the next opportunity to, to start qualifying. So definitely a lot more pressure, but a test of our system that Canada's passed with flying colors. Yeah, and you won't say this because you are working in official capacity as a you know a GM and a VP for a program, but I'll say it. I, I kind of feel like what FIBA did was short-sighted because unlike the FIFA World Cup, the domestic leagues aren't stopping for those international games. But you mentioned the depth of the talent also the depth of the culture of the program. You have guys playing, giving up their time to play, some of which aren't going to be able to play in the World Cup or, or potentially the Olympics because of the depth of guys that you have in the pros. Speak to me about the culture around the program that a bunch of guys, when called, said, okay, if it's good for the country, then it's good for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that, for example, starting in September, starting with the NBA guys and working my way down, I think there was 21 NBA players all across the world that suited up for their countries in September. And five of them were Canadian. Mm-hmm. So with all the nations in the world you had, right, if I do my math correct, you had 16 players in all the countries all around the world that were NBA players that played. Most NBA players said, no way I'm risking that. Right close to the start of my season, I could be risking my spot. I might not get back in the lineup the whole rest of the year. No way I'm doing it. I'm staying out. Right? That was a decision for most NBA players. Uh, and maybe some of them, you know, there was a, you never know, maybe there was injury. But, I mean, you know, really, when there's over 100 players all around the world that are NBA players playing and uh, 21 play, you know, when you look at 55 of them coming from Canada, you think that our players are definitely showing some commitment. And then when you, when you look down into the other, when you look into the European teams, you look at people playing in new sports, like a Padre Gray. You know, we give him the call. I mean, we had a, Xavier Rayton Mays who comes over from Europe a little bit banged up from his last game, feels like he can go, comes into the practices. It becomes clear after a couple of days that he's not going to be able to go. 
and we got to bring in Cadre Gray. Cadre Gray doesn't ask, how am I going to play or what position are you going to put me in? He's like, sign me up. How soon can I get there? You know? mm-hmm. I think that any kind of narrative um, that's out there about Canada basketball and its players needs to start with the commitment and sacrifice that our players are showing. Anyone that writes or speaks to dissenting in this way is clearly not doing their homework. It's lazy journalism. These guys are committed, and they're showing up. I mean, we had guys coming from Russia to come and train in Florida, and then a normal nine-hour flight down to Venezuela turns into a 25-hour trek where they they land at 4 a.m. on game day and arrive at at their hotel at 6 a.m. on game day go to sleep, get up and play. And because of the travel advisory, right, in Venezuela, we were trying to get our guys in and out as fast as possible. So on the same night of the game, they fly out at 2 a.m. and take another 15-hour travel day to get to Brazil. And then they rest up, and then they come out, and then they pound Brazil like this by 27 points. And what thanks do they get? They get to go fly all the way back to Russia. (laughs) This is absolutely incredible. Um, what we're seeing from our players, from our staff. You have coaches that are leaving U-sports teams during the season in, in Roy Rana and, and Patrick Tatum to come out and coach our team. Uh, it's just phenomenal all the way around. You know, doctors leaving their practice to come and travel with our team. I mean, the, the level of sacrifice and commitment is phenomenal all the way through our program. When you look at the depth guys that helped to get it done, because of the intricacies of trying to qualify during the NBA season and during the NCAA season, some of those guys may not get the call to go to China and there could be some disappointment there being involved in this experience. How is that going to help a lot of those guys in their individual careers? Having gone through this, it always helps you. I mean, having experienced that, I I know the feeling Uh, each of the players on our team are usually one of the top players, if not the top player on their teams in Europe. And so when you going back to playing on your regular team, quite often the level like we're playing at a higher level than some of these teams and some of the teams that they're going to play against. And so that always helps you as you come back, you know, to playing in your, in your team. And then in terms of their feelings, I think that we've developed a culture where it's a next man up type of mentality. And there's an understanding. Some of the players know, man, I'm I'm probably not going to make it, uh, but I'm going to help watch my country. I'm going to help propel my country. And then guys are going to stand on my shoulders to go in and try to win in that World Cup. And I think guys are reveling in that. And I think when you have, you know, a Tristan Thompson and a Kelly Olynyk texting within the, the chat group of our 35 players and talking about, man, I, I want to play right now. You know, with, with the way that you guys just played, I'm so jacked up. I just played a game. I want to go back out and play right now. That helps our players stand a little bit taller. It helps them stand a little bit straighter. You know, their chest comes out a little bit more. When you know that you've got the NBA guys also fully behind you, understanding, thankful for your sacrifice. And really, if you're going to be a team, that's a part of being a team sometimes. A part of being a team sometimes is stepping aside and saying, for the betterment of the group, it's better that this person steps in front of me. That's a part of being a a group and and having a type of culture, and that's what we've built at Canada Basketball. What was the reaction from some of the pro guys, you know, throughout the process as Canada continued to win, and then obviously after they got it done last night? No, it's been the same. It's been, hey, guys, keep our heads up. We got one more. You know, obviously, we didn't win with Venezuela. You're getting, you know, you're getting messages to tell the guys, keep their heads up, stay steady. 
And then when we win, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's euphoria, obviously, right? It's euphoria for many reasons. One, because you're, you're happy for your brothers out there playing. And then the other part is, you know, you know what's coming. You know, you know what the next step is. And I think, you know, as I was texting back and forth with Steve Nash during the game, I mean, we were giddy. You know, we were giddy watching this because to go into Brazil and win by 27, you know, I, I don't know that the public understands what that's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it is not simple. Right, like I can remember, Steve. We remember trying to qualify, you know, for the Olympics in 2000 and 1999 in Puerto Rico. You're driving in the street; they've got cars in your way. Where they they had to reroute our bus multiple times because everybody's trying to make your trip to the arena difficult. You get out of the bus and they're cheering and screaming against you. You know, you walk into the arena and they're throwing things at you. And then you get into the locker room, you finally have your, you know, your inner sanctuary, and they're banging and screaming in Spanish. And then you finally get out to walk on the floor, they're ready to go, and then the team runs in front of you. You know what I mean? Like, every single thing that can go wrong is going wrong. And at some point, if you want to win, I just remember, I remember us getting to a point where we said, okay, let the dog and pony show go through. We're going to beat you. It doesn't matter what you do, we're going to win today. We're going to beat you and the referees. And this type of mindset clearly was amongst our group last night. To go in there and maul that team, not beat that team, but maul them, and come out with a 27-point win on the road, you know, with Varejo, I mean, pros on the court. And to be able to do that kind of thing, to me, and Steve told us that our team mentally has now taken the step that's required to win um, in the FIBA game at that level. And so we were really giddy about that. And lastly, before I let you go quickly, I know there's a diaper dandy in Carolina who's excited about the proceedings last night and probably was, was sending you many texts. I, I believe you're familiar with them. You guys share the first name. How proud are you of the year that your son has had thus far? And, and what is his excitement level about being able to continue to represent Canada possibly uh, moving forward? You know, I think with RJ and all the rest of our players, I think there's excitement, you know, because everybody's been a part of building this thing. You know, we've been playing in the youth ages. They start in the junior academy, some of them. They play on the junior team. They, they play on the university team. And, you're, and everyone knows that, you know, all of these teams exist to feed the senior national team in the end, right, so that we can go and compete at the top of the world. And so whenever anyone that's in our program sees this happening, they're excited, right? There's a jubilation there because we're, we're succeeding, like, everybody is owning that win, whether they were on the floor last night or not, right? And so I think there's genuine excitement from all of our guys. You know, I'm very, very excited to see how our players kind of get through the year. You have a Tristan Thompson who's having a career year, right? You have a Dwight Powell who's, after some injuries trouble, he's been having you know, a great year. You look at Jamal Murray who's having his career high in points. His team is one of the best teams in the NBA, on and on and on. I mean, there's so many performances. You know, Stauskas is having, you know, probably his best year as a pro. So, I mean, there's guys all over the place that are performing very, very well. Kevin Pangos has taken a step up now into Barcelona. Big-time team. Kyle Wilson, you saw yesterday, 25-7, and gunning him down to help us win. So, uh, it's great to see that. I'm very interested to continue watching our players and see how they progress during the year. We'll have some difficult decisions when it's time to put this team together. But I think the number one thing for us will be to put the best team on the floor. Not the most talented team, necessarily, but the best team. 
that will fill the roles and do the things necessary in order to give the team a chance to win. Well, it's the first step, but it's a big step on the way to China for the World Cup. And then hopefully after that, the Olympics. Thank you so much for breaking it down. And once again, congrats on all the work you've done to make it happen. Thank you, Donovan. Big thanks to Rowan Barrett for joining the podcast once again. I'm sure we'll be talking to him much more as the team makes the march to China in 2019 and the Olympics thereafter. A guy who wants to be on that roster, who, in my opinion, should be on that roster and hopefully will be healthy enough to be on that roster is Tyler Ennis. We talked to him about all that and more coming up. So if you're like me, you are always looking to live stream the home of the NBA right here in Canada. Well, then you need Sportsnet Now. It's the product for you, available to anyone over the internet. Sportsnet Now gives you 24-7 access to all the Sportsnet channels, number one. But you got the content that's not just on TV. You got some online exclusives on all of your popular devices. Apple TV, tablet, Xbox, Chromecast. So sign up for it for as long or as little as you like because you can cancel whenever. I use it to live stream the Raptors and NBA matchups specifically. I mean, yes, I do it for work. But even if I was just a fan, being able to see games out of market is so, so key. And if you're a hockey dude, we got something for you too. Over 500 NHL games plus MLB postseason plus the World Series plus the Premiership. That's right, United. Would you like to watch? Visit snnow.ca for more details. And if you are a United fan, I feel for you, because I am one. Keep the 18th pick in the 2014 NBA Draft. The Phoenix Suns select Tyler Ennis from Brampton, Canada and Syracuse University. Giannis spinning in, goes out to Dudley. Ennis in the corner. Spots up for three. Good for Tyler Ennis. Ennis down the lane from the foul line. Shoots. Banks it in. Oh, Tyler Ennis banked it in from just outside the foul line on a jump shot. Chalmers to the trailer. Ennis to the rim. Hangs it, scoops it, scores. Nice move to the left side of the iron as Ennis glided to the basket. Tyler Ennis. Ennis driving down the middle. Teardrop in the lane. Good. 135 remaining. Lakers by two. Every possession important now. Here's Fry. Right side Zubat. Back to Ennis. Seven to shoot. Ennis lays it in! I thought he was dribbling underneath Michael to get it to Kuzma, and he just shot it with his left hand. Now joining us on Free Association, he's someone who ball fans in this city, this country, know well. Uh, he's a, a six man, first and foremost. He's also an orange man, uh, repping Syracuse. You know, I, I refer to him as a point god, Tyler Ennis. First of all, I'm kind of sad that you're here in the city. <laughs> that I'm able to do this. Yeah, exactly, because <laughs> it means you're not on a court. Right. But thank you for coming through and just give you know the fans an update on what's going on with you and why, sadly, you're able to kind of come through and talk to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this past season, I chose to go to Turkey you know, to go play for Fenerbahce, which, you know, I really didn't have any um, history on them other than, you know, Anthony Bennett played for them at one point. But, you know, basically the the best team in Europe, best team in EuroLeague, multiple NBA guys, a lot of, you know, former lottery picks, a lot of 
European legends have been there and, and whatnot. So I chose to go over there. For me, it was just more so about taking control of my career. You know, I've had opportunities and, you know, kind of stretches where I've been able to play and show what I could do, but I haven't had a full season. I feel like where I'm able to be comfortable in my role and, and really show what I could do. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the best thing for me was to go over there and play for a team and play for something as opposed to, you know, worrying about my minutes and stats and the whole, you know, thing that goes along with the NBA. And, you know, I think it was the perfect situation to go be a part of a team, have a big role, but also, you know, show what I could do on a, a really big stage. So played two months there. I believe we were six or seven and zero at the time. I ended up breaking my leg. And, you know, luckily the team was, uh, you know, nice enough to let me come back and rehab with, you know, some people I trust uh, in Toronto. So I'm here for a few months, uh, recovering really fast, a lot faster than I expected. And, you know, just kind of making sure and taking my time to make sure everything's right before I'm back on the court fully. But, uh, you know, that's basically why I'm in the city right now. You say, yeah, I broke my leg, like all like casual <laughs> nonchalant. Like if I broke my leg, I'd be crying, like yeah. just talking about it. But it kind of happened casual and nonchalant to the point where you weren't even really sure you showed me the x-ray and i'm like okay i'm sure right 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 but explain to the the listeners how it how it happened kind of like a just a freak thing right right um any team you go to when you're on a, a level like euro league or nba you you do a bunch of x-rays before the season you do a physical you do a bunch of stuff just to make sure you know you don't have any injuries you don't know about you know your heart's pumping at the right rate everything you know just to look out for the player basically and, you know, I did that at the start of the season. I felt great. And Europe, you play a lot more than you do in the NBA as far as games, practices. So you're just playing every day. And um, I felt good. I felt really good. Uh, I worked in this summer to prepare myself for it. And uh, we had a game, say it was Monday. The game I got hurt was on Wednesday. So we had a day in between. We had practice. I felt really good. And then I literally came in the game, first couple plays, and um, it just snapped. Like my leg... I haven't watched the video yet. I have the x-rays. I've seen the picture uh, actually today. But it didn't feel like what the injury was to me. Like I was in pain, but it felt as something as simple as if I kicked you in the leg right now, that initial pain, that's what I felt. And it wasn't until I looked on the baseline and we had some of our players were injured and I seen their faces and I kind of put two and two together because I just watched a bunch of games. I've seen these guys get injured and I know when they... You know, in the NBA, they bring out a towel and to cover the injury, I know it's pretty gruesome. And But they didn't do that for me. But uh, I kind of put two and two together. And I literally asked the doctor when he came out, you know, is it broken? And he kind of gave me like a, uh, like, what do you think? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, you know, from then I had surgery the next morning. Uh, it was a night game and I literally didn't look at my leg until I came out of surgery. And I'm expecting some, uh, you know, big scar. I'm expecting, you know, like just the worst. Because I didn't even ask really what the surgery was until like right before I went in just because I didn't want to think about it you know the pain I didn't want anything and I came out I'm just like yo where's you know like where's my scar what like what happened and it's you know the technology nowadays makes it so easy for them to to go in and fix stuff and you know I was essentially starting to walk right when I got out of surgery and I think that helped you know to get my body back and keep it in the shape that it was in just because I was you know basically heading into the middle of the season so I'm fortunate that the turkey uh, I was in Istanbul, Turkey, and their doctors and surgeons were really good, and now I'm in some pretty good hands in uh, in Toronto. So, You talked about the amount of games you play and, and the amount you play, period, in Europe and how fast-paced that schedule is. I was watching Pedro Stojakovic talk about Luka Doncic and his transition and how in the league, 
at times it's almost easier because in Europe you got two a days. Like right. the CBA is not talking about how often you can practice and for how long. Absolutely. Like they're really running you. It, it was that a transition for you going over there? And do you see why European guys coming to the league are able to kind of hit the ground running because mm-hmm. in many ways it's easier on your body? Yeah. On top of that, they're able to play pro at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Like on my team, we had a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, and even though they might not be playing, they're practicing and traveling. So getting used to that lifestyle. But um, you know, luckily my team wasn't the ones that uh, that did two days. You know, we'd have longer practices than the NBA. In the NBA, you actually have uh, mandatory days off. So one day, basically one day a week, uh, depending on the games you get off. Whereas in Europe, you play in two leagues. So we played in a Turkish league and we played in Euro League. So. People don't know that, you know, watching the games. You just see the big games where you play, you know, the big teams. So essentially playing in two leagues plus practices, you're playing every day. And off day might not happen for two weeks, three weeks, a month. Um, And, you know, my coach was pretty good about uh, managing minutes and and realizing that, you know, we weren't the youngest team. You know, we had two guys that were 35 on our team. You know, I was basically one of the younger players, you know, but it it is an adjustment. Uh, Luka Doncic was playing for the team that won last year, Real Madrid. He was the best player in EuroLeague. He won MVP. So for him, 18, I don't know how long he was playing pro, but he's, there's no shell shock for him. You know, he's played against the best players in Europe. So coming to the NBA, he has that confidence. And he's, uh, I would say, the chosen one from Europe. You know, like he's the next guy, the next Dirk, you know, Ginobili. He's getting compared to those guys, and rightfully so, so far in his career. So how good of a situation is that for him to be immediately with one of the previous chosen Guys and Dirk. Right. No, no. I think it helps him a lot. Dirk, obviously, from the mentorship standpoint. But also, I just look at it from um, he's able to go to a team that needed him right away. And, you know, I think uh, the guys that come from Europe, a lot of guys put labels on them. They're soft or whatever, whatever you want to say. But in Europe, those guys were the best in their league. So it's an adjustment. But I think um, going to a team where he's able to be himself, he probably is averaging more points in the NBA than he did in Europe. It's a different game. There's no, you know, three in the key. So you could have a seven-footer in the key at all times. You know, a defensive three in the key I'm talking about. And uh, you could knock the ball. There's just certain rules that make it actually somewhat harder to score in Europe. You know, kind of like college. You talk to a lot of NBA guys that played in college. And a lot of them will tell you it's harder to score in college than it is in the NBA. Just because of the rules, because of the shot clock. You Guys play zone. You know, me going to Syracuse, we have seven foot plus guy in the key at all times. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could beat me one out of three times, but you had to go meet him at the same time. Whereas in the NBA, you might get a clear lane, you might get isolation. So, you know, it's just uh, different things that you notice as you, you know, I've played college, I played EuroLeague, I played NBA. So, you know, comparing them, I would say, obviously NBA is the best league, but EuroLeague, I, I would say is definitely second, you know, as far as the talent, the gameplay and whatnot. You mentioned soft, and that's something that bothers me when when people, and, and oftentimes it's us in the media, mm-hmm. say, oh, well, this this guy, he's from this country, he's, he's soft, whether right. it's Canada or Europe. And I think people mistake finesse with soft, mm-hmm. and they conflate the two, because you can't tell me a guy coming from Yugoslavia or Serbia or Turkey, mm-hmm. and who's grown up there, things that he or she, may have seen, could be tougher than some of the things you see in the hood in the inner city right, in right. the U.S. or here. So I don't, I, I never understood why we've labeled European players and, and, and a bit Canadian players as soft mm-hmm. just because their style of play is a little bit more fluid. Right, and something I noticed over there is that flopping is a technique they 
you know, like develop over there. Yes. And that's what they do. Whereas here you, you flop, you know, you see people make fun of Marcus Smart, whereas he's one of the best defenders in the league and he flops because that one play could win the Celtics the game as opposed to them losing. Right. And so they use that. You know, it, it looks crazy. It's frustrating as a player to go over there and deal with it. But when you realize if you're able to get away with it, why wouldn't you? And so they look at that. They look at the mentality. You know, they're just from Europe, so they're soft. But as far as the fans and, you know, everything that goes into playing in Europe, you know, you definitely got to have a different mental state, you know, to succeed and be good enough for them to notice you over there and to bring you to the NBA. You know, obviously at some point, you know, when I was younger, I looked at the same way. But playing against them, playing with them and, and being around it, to go through two a days, two hour practices every day, go through fans throwing and spitting at you, you got to be mentally tough, you know? So if you've never been to a game, seen a game in Europe, it's hard to hard to comprehend that. So a lot of Americans are like that. And I was like that, you know, before going over there. Yeah, I mean, you look at, you mentioned Marcus Smart. That's a good one. He flops, but people wouldn't necessarily say he's soft. But if Vladi Divac flopped, well, he was soft, right? If Harden is flopping on offense to get a call, you're not necessarily going to say he's Soft, but if Dirk is flopping on offense, right, right, he's soft. So we kind of change the. You kind of pick and uh, pick and choose when you want to use it that way. And I think European people obviously got it, got that label right away. Right. So, you know, maybe Luca will change that as he as he keeps playing. But we've taken a bit from their game, like the Euro step, literally, right. The name of yep. it, right, has come from Europe. Have you seen things with your play, both internationally and obviously in Europe, things? in their game, which may even be ahead of what we're doing in North America. First thing that comes to my mind is the plays. Europe is different as far as in the NBA, the coaching outside of Popovich and maybe Brad Stevens now is kind of like a carousel where you're there for a few years, you get fired, you go to this team. Whereas in, in Europe, like our coach, the coach I played for is a legend. You know, he's won a bunch of championships. So he's kind of, you know, set on the team. He's not going anywhere. And he has you know, a system, a foundation. And it's kind of like San Antonio in the sense, like he only brings players in that fit into what he's doing. And, um, you know, just the sets are so advanced. I think, you know, you have a playbook in the NBA where I could read it and you give it to me tonight. And by tomorrow, I could tell you every play, every position. And I've never had a problem with that. Whereas going over to Europe, we had a hundred variations of plays before the preseason was over and we were continuing to put plays in. And it was good for our team because we've had, uh, we only had two new guys you know, two newcomers, but to learn 150, 200 variations of plays is difficult. And I think the, that makes them, you know, if you notice European players for the most part, their uh, IQ is a lot further along than NBA players. But I think uh, as as uh, more Europeans are playing, more Canadians, you know, the American players are obviously the most athletic, but, you know, as they keep going forward, I think soon we'll see a, a kind of a, a more influx of European players in the NBA and more plays and, and the way it is over there. We even had a lot of American scouts, American coaches come over college or whatever level to watch what my coach does in practice when, you know, the sets he runs and they take that and use it in their own. And I'm not saying all the coaches do that, but it's uh, a trend, you know, so I think Europe is ahead of the NBA in that sense. But, you know, I think the players are obviously still better than the NBA. One thing people have complained about a little bit, this year, I don't know if you've heard this, is, well, everyone's playing the same in the league. Everyone's trying to get up threes. Everyone's trying to play at a higher pace. And that stylistically, there aren't too many different teams. Memphis is still a slower pace team, mm -hmm. but everyone's playing four out and right. they're trying to get up threes or get in the paint and get to the rim. Mm -hmm. And so when you watch a game, the uniform's the only really thing that's, that's changing. Right. 
Did you notice that from when you started in the league to your most recent season with the Lakers that whether it's looking at scouting reports or even what you've asked to do as a point guard, that the looks that you're getting are kind of similar? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think Golden State really changed the landscape of the league in that sense. You know, but it's a copycat league. So if another team comes and dethrones the Warriors and become, you know, a powerhouse, people are going to copy what they do because it's successful. And, you know, one of the only ways to beat a three-pointer is to shoot threes, you know, better. Right. Better than the other team. And uh, I played for Luke Walton, who was in Golden State. So we kind of had the same system as them, but we didn't have three of the greatest shooters we've ever seen in, <laughs> in the league. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. in basketball history is on the same team, yeah. you know? So a lot of teams are uh, attempting to do that and everybody wants to score. I think, uh, I can't remember what team it was. I was watching a game the other day and they're averaging, I think Cleveland averaging 102, 103 points in their last in the league. Yeah. Whereas a couple of years ago, you know, that wasn't the case. So everybody's trying to score more. Um, and a lot of people might not like it, but it's definitely, I think, for making the game more fun to watch just for the average fan. But um, things change, you know, right now, and nobody wants to play with big men. Whereas, <laughs> you know, a team is successful playing with one, then it'll come back. And it's just a, a, a trend in the league that's going on right now, and we'll see how long it lasts. And the knock was before, you live by the three, die by the three. Right. You can't win a championship shooting jump shots, Right. Right, and f- I have a story. So I played for D'Antoni in Houston. Mm-hmm. And if you remember when he was in Phoenix, they would always get, I think it was the second round. They'd get to a round and they could never get past it. Yeah, second and, round. And they played a different version, but they played shooting threes, running layups, and a different version of what Golden State's doing. And people looked at them like they were crazy. What was it uh, when Nash was playing there? And now with Golden State being so successful, everyone's trying to copy that. And I was in Houston D'Antoni's first year so I was able to see him implement all that stuff you know like okay you know you shot a mid-range it went in but the percentages are saying if you did a layup you had a more likely chance of scoring and right. we need to score you know so he'd always say how do you win a basketball game you outscore the other team you right. know what I'm saying and and you know his focus main focus was offense and I think it was a match made in heaven for him to have arguably the best offensive player all around and James Harden Trevor Reese, one of the best corner three-point shooters. Eric Gordon, a great three-point shooter. And Clint Capella, at the time, um, one of the best rollers. So I think the makeup of the team was perfect for them to keep building. And I think right now they're not playing the best, but I think with James and CP and those guys, I think, I'd think i never count them out of going on a run and winning 20 straight because they've done that before, you know? Yeah, I mean, his seven seconds or less sons, if you looked at their pace and applied it to the league now, they would be last in the league right. in pace, which right. is crazy. When you think about it, they were the team that kind of ushered in this wave. And you mentioned Steve Kerr. Like, where did he learn that stuff when he was GM of the Suns, right? right. And, and it's kind of continued to grow. The thing, though, with Dan Tony, you know, and some people call him Antony because no D, <laughs> is that, like, he's solely focused on the offensive end. Mm-hmm. And then when you play another like offensive team, like the Warriors, can you get stops or when your threes run out and they missed 20 plus in a row Mm -hmm. in a crucial game will you be able to to rest on your laurels defensively and they had some guys like Ariza Mm -hmm. like Tucker like Mbamute who could clean up some of the defensive issues Mm -hmm. for the other guys now they don't have Ariza and Luke anymore and they're a little bit more more trouble did you see enough balance from him that made you think okay this could work on the championship level when everyone is good at everything I was more thinking about the roster, you know, because as a player, a young player, I'm not looking 
it's D'Antoni, a, a legendary coach, obviously. Played, you know, uh, Coach Nash. I'm not looking in, oh, can we win a championship? I'm looking at, okay, how could I learn this system and right. be successful? So I wasn't really thinking of that. I was just looking at the roster of, all right, we got James Harden, we have Trevor Reza, <laughs> we have, at the time, Patrick Beverly, we yeah. had Corey Brew. We had a lot of pieces that just fit the whole, like, essentially James and CP playmake every play. You know, the ball is going through them. You have shooters, and then you have a roller, and Clint, who's one of the best in the league at doing what he does. And I, I, I was just more worried about every play, like having to create every play is exhausting. Yes. For a game, much less doing it every game for a season, much less doing it in the playoffs seven times in a row playing the same team Yeah. in round one, round two, you know, the conference finals. You know, so, so that's what I was thinking about. But I think he won coach of the year that, that year as yep. well. You know, I think it's more about a roster makeup. You know, because he had the same system essentially since the Suns and he coached in L.A. and it didn't work out too well. He didn't have the right roster. I think he coached in New York as well. It didn't Mm -hmm. work out. And he came to Houston as not a question mark, but uh, people were kind of like, okay, how is this going to work? And it's, you know, a match made in heaven with what he has there. The difference, though, is it's so heavy ISO now offensively. Where in Phoenix, they were getting out and running and Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of movement off the ball and passing where... Now it's okay. Everyone's watching and James is dancing. Right. And then, okay, CP, here's your turn to dance, right? Right. It's hard to like, as a coach, I I try to think of it as from what he's coming from. And you have James Harden who, if he's ISOing, making a play, I'd give him eight or nine times out of 10, something that's happening. Whether they're scoring, they're getting good shot, they're getting fouled. And although he has a high turnover rate, of course, if he has the ball every play, he's making every play. I was more worried about James being able to do that every game. And obviously, I think he was uh, definitely up there. Like, if they would have gave James MVP over Russ, being his teammate, I would have been happy about that, obviously. But, you know, he's able to do it. And I don't know a lot of other guys. You know, I think there's a handful of guys that are able to make plays at that level consistently for a whole game. And he's he's able to do it. I think they just have to prove they could do it through the season, but also through the playoffs, just because that's a whole other season in itself. We're going to look back and say that should have been James's MVP. Like Russ, yeah, he averaged a triple-double, but, I mean, Steven Adams is, like, boxing guys out <laughs> so Russ could get the rebounds. Like, that was a bit manufactured. Yes, he had, you know, double figures in three categories, mm-hmm. but the guy who impacted the game the most was Harden, who also had a bunch of triple-doubles that right, year. Right, right, right. I wouldn't have been, I think, the NBA is opposed to it just because it's, it's so rare. I, would, I wouldn't have been opposed to them doing co-MVPs that year Mm -hmm. just because the Rockets the year before was I think an eight seed yeah maybe a first round exit I don't know the exact but went to I think we finished second in the west or first in the west whatever it was you know to make that big jump to average what he was doing on a nightly basis I think he deserved it I think Russ deserved it as well averaging a triple double but you know he he was able to get it the second year but I definitely think he deserved a co-MVP at the at the very least so your observation, and you were thinking about it looking inward, at like, man, like, how am I going to be able to create that much myself? Looking at it and applying that to James, I think that's been the kind of criticism of D'Antoni's approach of can you ask this guy to continue to manufacture all of this offense, such a high usage rate, mm-hmm. when he burned out against the Spurs in the playoffs. He kind of burned out 
against the Warriors last year in the playoffs, especially after CP got hurt. And and you could say, in a way, that hamstring injury is a sign of CP burning out a little bit, right? That's when your hamstring goes. Or on the flip side, you look at the Warriors. Well, Steph is doing a lot off the ball. KD's getting his his mid-post touches, but he can also just, you know, give it to Steph for a bit. Clay, his usage physically is often defending the, the toughest guy, mm-hmm. and he can rest. And plus, they're blowing people out, and they're resting those guys right, for so many fourth, fourth quarters. Yeah, right, right, right. So they're preserving them and giving them scheduled rest. I think that's the critique is not even the X's and O's. It's just mm-hmm. how sustainable is this? I think it's tough just because we, we compare everything to Golden State. Right. Because they're the, not the standard, they're what everybody's chasing right now. And it's hard to say that anyone could copy them because they have two of the top, whatever you want to say, three players in the league. They have Igudala, who's any team he go to, he's one of the best players, a veteran, a leader, a champion. They have Clay Thompson, who's a perennial all-star. They have Draymond, they have Sean Livingston. So their makeup, I think, allows them to do stuff like that where they could say, all right, Steph, go play off the ball. Right. Steph, we're playing OKC. We're, we're going to put uh, Clay on Russ instead. So you focus on scoring. You right. know what I'm saying? So they're able to do things like that, whereas Houston, their roster makeup, whether it's purposely or not, they don't have uh, Igudala where they could say, all right, James, go play off the ball. They have James Harden, they have CP3, and they have a bunch of guys who do what they do, and that's defend really well. And shoot threes really well, or a big man. And it's hard as a coach, if you think about it, you're thinking of James is making a good play nine times out of ten. How do I justify giving someone else the ball to make this play when 90% of the time something good's coming from it? You know what I'm saying? Right. Whether that's ignoring fatigue or, or whatever and thinking he could play through it, but I do see his point in nine times out of ten we're getting something good whether we score or not. How do we justify putting this, whatever, rookie point guard in. All right, James, you stand in the corner and wait for the ball. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that's something they got to figure out going forward. And as we take the conversation to focus on the team in this market, the Raptors, Mm -hmm. the reason why I rate Nick Nurse is because he's been like, yo, if we're going to lift the Larry O'Brien trophy, and if that's the goal, like if that's the standard that we're all talking about, then at some point I'm going to have to empower Pascal Siakam to make plays for Mm -hmm. us. I'm going to have to play Fred and Kyle together and let Fred make plays and Kyle will be a spot-up shooter. I'm going to have to play DeLon and Fred together and give Kyle some rest. Right. You know what I mean? Now he's got the temptation and just giving it to Kawhi. Mm -hmm. But, you know, over the last year or so, especially with the bench mob last year, Mm -hmm. the culture has been, we're going to have to build up those other guys as, as offensive playmakers so that when it counts, there's going to be other guys, especially if... Kyle's hurt or Kyle just has an off night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a few things I noticed about the Raptors in the past. I'd say three, four years is that their guys just seem so confident in the sense they're allowed to make mistakes and play through them. And I've been in situations, I've talked to guys, my friends, whatever, people in the NBA, and that's not normal. You know, so they do empower those guys. I don't know to what extent, but to see Van Vliet come up in their system and be you know one of the best backups in the league to see Delon Wright come up in their system and last night he was one of the you know better players on the floor to see Pascal to see these guys come up in the system and they trust them and a lot of teams focus on how to match up and how to match th- their opponent 
Whereas I think the Raptors focus on themselves a lot more in the sense, you know, if we're going to have Van Vliet and Lowry, who are two smaller guards, they got to match up with us as opposed to thinking, oh, we can't play them together because what are we going to do when we guard them? And it, and it helps having Kyle being such a good defender. He can guard bigger guys, whatever the case is. But their bench has two point guards, a shooter, a big, you know, they focus on themselves and what's going to make them go as opposed to just, oh, you know, we're playing these guys tonight. They have a big lineup, so we can't play Van Vliet. No, they're like, all right, they got to they gotta guard Van Vliet too. And mm-hmm. I think that just built a culture there where no matter who's playing, no matter who's in, you know, they have a bunch of guys, such a deep roster that they could trust at the end of games or when guys are injured. And I think that's what built their bench up and, and why they're so deep. I think now they could probably go, I don't know the numbers, maybe 11, 12 deep with guys they trust, rotation, legit guys in the NBA, you know? And if you look at the makeup of those guys, Fred Van Vliet, Mr. Bet on Yourself, mm-hmm. undrafted, spent time in their D-League system. Siakam, later round pick, spent time in their D-League system. Right. Norm Powell, second round pick, spent time in their D-League system. Dillon Wright, later round pick, spent time in their D-League system. So these are guys who, you know, they clearly saw something in early, identified them, but then have allowed them to kind of come up through their system and they've seen the the work throughout the process. And and now when they get to the stage, you know, they're empowering them to continue right, they have to develop confidence. those skills. And they've they've seen them kind of grow and, and add to their games. I mean, even a guy like Alfonso McKinney, who's mm-hmm. not even on the team anymore because he couldn't even get minutes. And now he goes to the Warriors and he's like a rotation guy. Right. He's listening to um, you know, <laughs> Warriors podcasts and like reading their articles. And the beat writers in the Bay are like, man, this this rotation needs Alfonso McKinney back. Like, Crazy, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, yo, this guy couldn't get minutes for the Raptors. So they've found a way, and it's hard in the league to do two things at once. Compete at the top level and develop at the same time. Absolutely. Because yeah. sometimes you got to go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It's, yo, we are tanking hard, right? We're going to be sorry for Jabari, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or we are going to kind of throw all the chips in the middle of the table and compete. And especially in this climate now where everyone are like, man, what are the chances we beat the Warriors? Mm -hmm. Not high. Yeah. So why don't I just go grab one of them dudes from Duke and try and build my own Warriors, right? right? So they've been able to manage the two, which I I think is underappreciated because it's tough. Yeah. And there's only, I think, a few teams off the top. I can think of Boston who does that. You know, you see Rozier who... His first year didn't play. Second year, got minutes. Third year, he's did what he did last year. You know, Jalen Brown, who came off the bench his first year. Second year, he's a starter in, you know, the Eastern Conference Finals. Tatum is starting right off the bat, but he's playing for, you know, he's playing for something in his first year. So they have a bunch of guys they built. Obviously, Philly, just because their team's makeup is those young guys. Portland as well. Mm-hmm. Portland has a history of Alan Crabb, who came up in their system Will Barton was in their system. You know, they've had a bunch of guys. Even C.J. McCollum, you know, wasn't playing at first, you know, its first couple of years in the league. And turns out to be their cornerstone, one of the cornerstones of the, the franchise. So I think it, it definitely is tough, I think, for teams to balance developing guys and competing. But, uh, you know, the few few teams have figured it out. And a lot of teams haven't figured it out. Right. But, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, there's a lot of always turnover in the league as far as, GM's getting fired, coach is getting fired, and, um, you know, I think there's just a lot of exterior stuff that goes on that the average fan wouldn't understand it, but 
there's a lot of stuff going on that you know to to make sense of what goes on in the league. Yeah, there's that pressure from the top. Like I'm sure there's many GMs, presidents who would love to develop their talent, but they're like, yo, am I going to make my next contract? Right, right, right. So I, I need to get some wins exactly. right now. And, that's what and coaches about. who are like, listen, do I want to take these L's on my right. on my record? Right? They're competitors too. And that's why I, I see Philly, you mentioned Philly, and their, their whole trust the process movement. And now they're like, yo, scrap that. We want to win, right. We want to win. So, mm-hmm. yo, we're going to go get Jimmy Butler, Peace Covington, Pete Sarich, you know, Markel, you know, figure out your shoulder, but mm-hmm. do it on your own time. Like yeah. we're trying to win right now. I felt like if they just stayed the course, cause I almost sped up the process because they were so good. So quick mm-hmm. felt like if they stayed the course. They probably wait out the warriors, right? When they were kind of coming down, they'd be going up and they would just have a team of young dudes on controllable contracts that would wreck the league for a while. Right, right, right. And, and I think that's the tough part of being a GM, Yeah, but also a coach you were mentioning. Everyone has pressure. And I was told something, I, I don't remember who told me, but everyone's essentially out for figuring out where they're going to get paid next as far as their contract. And so you have a GM who's going to draft, he's going to draft you, he's going to you know invest in you in that sense, but if you're not producing, he's not going to lose his job over trying to get you to where you're supposed to be or where he envisioned you to be. And I think that happens in every sense, you know, with Hoiberg getting uh, Fred Hoiberg getting fired, a team that I don't think they planned on going to the playoffs. They have a bunch of young guys. They have a bunch of young pieces, but oh, you're not winning, even though they're technically not expected to win. You know, so it's you always have that pressure, and coaches deal with that. And you know, I respect coaches for being able to balance it. You know, developing the young guys. You know, mixing in some vets, but also winning games, even if you're not technically supposed to be winning these games. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you were at the Raptors game against the Nuggets and the call that Raptors fans have been still complaining about (laughs) online on Twitter. And now that you're in the city for a season, which is the first time in a while. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've been away playing in in the league and the NCAA and in high school is Raptors fans freak out over calls and everything is against them. Yeah. (laughs) Right. We've got that inferiority complex as Canadians. And so as soon as they lost, Right. Oh, okay. You know, it's fixed. The league doesn't want us to succeed. <laughs> so on and so forth. But a late game call, and if you didn't see it, Abaka was called on the inbound. So mm-hmm. be- before the ball was thrown in, late game situation for kind of, you know, clutching and holding Jokic, he goes to the line, hits two free throws, and that was the call that was disputed. I mean, it was a foul. Right. But from a player's perspective, mm-hmm. is a foul on the game determining situation, play, inbounds, is it a foul? Like, what's the level of contact that you expect, especially, you know, off the ball? Then we're not talking about a shooting foul here. Mm -hmm. It's tough, honestly, because it was tie game at that time, right? Like, if you're you're Tyler Ennis and you're the offensive player, do you want want that call? I want the call. Do I expect that? No. So you don't expect it? I don't expect that because it's so late in the game. You know, like... Essentially, the refs making that call is them deciding the game, in a sense. Mm. Because I make those free throws, I get fouled again, it's a three-point game. Whereas they could hit a three, but if it's a two-point game, that changes everything. Right, Changes what they run, what they do. And I think it's tough, especially when it's a tie game. And essentially, this play is going to determine who wins or loses, or if it's overtime. So I think as a fan and as an, you know the defensive player, I'd rather the refs leave it up to basketball to determine that 
as opposed to the refs. But I think they made the next two free throws and the Raptors lost by three. Yeah. And so essentially they lost the game on that play, but you never know what, what would happen if it went to overtime and whatnot. So I would have rather the ref left it and leave it up to basketball, but it is a foul. So you can't, a foul is a foul, no matter if it's the first minute of the game, the last minute. So, but it's, that's not a call you call. I don't think. So the notion of swallowing the whistle, right? Letting the players play. That's actually a thing. It's not just something we talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think the refs have, like we said, pressure as well because they're focused on by their, whoever leads the refs. But basically if they don't call that and say the Raptors stole the ball in the inbound because of that hold, then you have the whole Denver Nuggets fans arguing that they should have called that. So I think it's a foul's a foul. I think if that happened to me on my team, you know, it'd be bitter, but I think a foul is a foul. And that's the way I approach the game at all times, you know? You mentioned the refs having some accountability. And the NBA has the two-minute report, last two-minute report. Yep. Comes out every game, goes through all the calls. And I've never understood it. I mean, one, if that call goes against you and the league corrects it and says, oh, it was supposed to go the way, what, do you, are you going to sleep better at night? Like, it's not right. going to make you feel any better. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of throwing your officials under the under bus. Under the bus, right. Do you guys pay attention to that at all, or did it just upset you? I think it's kind of pointless, honestly. And I think it doesn't do anything for anyone. And why two minutes? If the foul happened at 201, it wasn't as important? Right. I mean, I think the refs have such a tough job, especially the last two minutes of the game. So if players, you know, there's times we turn the ball over, miss a shot, the refs are going to make these mistakes as well, you know, and they're watching this in real time. Whereas, you know, you're watching it at home. I could see something because I'm watching the entire court. They're looking at this in real time basketball game. And I don't think the two minute report does anything. Cause if they say, I, I think um, Atlanta was playing uh, the Lakers, Trey Young did a floater or whatever. And they came out and said, Oh, it was a goal 10. Basically the Hawks should have won, but that does nothing for the Hawks record. Yeah. You're not changing the standings. Nothing's changing. And essentially the refs are, you know, you're just throwing the refs under the bus. The Lakers still get the win in the end. You know what I'm saying? So it really does nothing. I think it's essentially kind of pointless. I don't know. I don't know why they even put that in. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's for, for transparency. Cause you know, they don't want to be seen as, Oh, well, you know, with gambling, with, with all the rumors of refs, we want to be but even on, with, up and up. Even with gambling, you gamble on a game. If I'm betting you about the Raptors game, I'm not waiting for the two-minute report to say, <laughs> yeah. hey, well, actually, I, I, actually won. I won this game. You know what I'm saying? So Clint. it doesn't do anything really <laughs> yeah. for the game. It doesn't do anything for, I think it just leaves a bitter taste in the loser's mouth. If now I'm looking at the refs like, oh, you made us lose. So if we missed the playoffs by one game, it was the refs' fault. Whereas right. that's, that's basketball, you know? NBA is lucky enough to have these you know, the review and the video and call Sakakis and everything like that already. <laughs> so last two minutes report, I don't think there's anything for anyone. Well, that's the other thing. I feel like we're calling Sakakis for everything right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, clear path, everything. is. T- but the clear path is so tough and it's, I think it's new. I think it's pretty new as far as, you know, them, them calling it. And it's hard for a ref to see because right when the turnover happens, once I get the ball, I'm gone. Yeah. And so for a ref to realize that, to get ahead of the play and to be watching to see who else is ahead of the play, it's damn near impossible. So right. I think that's why whenever you see a clear path, they go straight to the monitor because yeah. it's impossible to see. You can't look at two things at once. Before we get to some Canada basketball stuff, so I want to hit you up about that. You've been watching a lot of hoops, mm-hmm. a lot of ball since you've been back in 
had some downtime. Your impression of the Raptors, because again, the fans are super excited. Half of them are drinking the Kool Aid, and half of them are just finding a reason to hate. You know, same old Raptors, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no nuance. It's either like one or the other. It's totally mm-hmm. binary in the city. But your impression of the Raptors, something that you've seen watching them up close now, not just you know watching scouting reports against them, that you've seen that you've been really impressed with. And one thing that you've seen that you're like, okay, they're going to have to work this out or improve it to get to the next level and, and win a championship. Yeah, I mean, playing against them, you realize, one, how deep they are. Them having, I think they ended up the best bench in the league or, or yeah. one of. Yeah, I think Lowry's so tough, and he's the leader of the team. He's With Kawhi being the best player, I think Lowry's still the leader of the team. And he's tough. I mean, he's coming out every night. He's bringing it. And, you know, whether you want to talk about his consistency in the playoffs, He's giving fit to the other point guard every night. And he that's not an easy job. You know what I'm saying? He's an all-star. And I think, you know, a lot of Raptors fans take it for granted how much he leads the team. Stats-wise, it might not always be pretty. Playoff-wise, I know Raptors fans talk a lot of a lot of shit about him. Um, but, you know, he's one of the best point guards in the league. One of the hardest to play against during the regular season. And you see it, you know, since, what, the last four or five years, they've been top in the East and they've made the playoffs and made some really big runs and I think Raptors fans are just looking for that next level and I think adding Kawhi and adding a couple other pieces and you know Pascal coming along and having you know a lot of people don't talk about Greg Monroe kind of an insurance you know someone who's played in the playoffs can score the ball a veteran I don't want to claim anybody to win the Eastern Conference and it's going to be a lot closer I think than the last couple of years but um, you know I think the Raptors are are right now the best team in the east and and we'll see how it ends up in the playoffs you know the team could change other teams could change whatever it is but you know i don't really know what else they need at this point to get to that next level i think they have all the pieces it's just a matter of luck to stay healthy luck that other teams don't stay healthy and and just kind of getting it done at this point what makes kyle so tough to play against because real talk for people listening he's not that much taller than me, and I'm not tall. Yeah, no, he's but, not. But physically. he's built like 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 a running back almost. Right, he's not a tall, athletic player, but he's bringing it every night. You know, if you're watching, he's bringing it whether he's scoring or making plays or defensively and taking charges. Yeah, whatever it is, he's bringing it every night. And as a a player, not everybody in the league's doing that. Why? just what it is. I mean, you're playing 82 games and whether it's by choice, which I don't think it is, it's you're coming off a back to back, you're injured, whatever it is. But the games I've watched, he's out there making it difficult for the other point guard. And I think that's not as easy as fans think it is. So I, I respect Lowry a lot in that sense um, as a competitor, but I don't know what else you do if you're making up a roster other than, the you know, like, adding all-stars and superstars, I don't know what other roster you could put together. Like, I don't know what the next step is for them. But, you know, in the East and the way they've been playing, I think they're on the way. I mean, I think they'll they'll make some noise. So he mentioned how he plays hard every night. And, and again, for me, he plays like a football player, but football players only play 16 games. He's playing 82. Right. Is there, devil's advocate, some credence to maybe, yo, you should dial it back from 100 to like, yo, just keep it 90 for me. Because the criticism of him, and it went away a little bit last year, but how is he going to finish the year Mm -hmm. from a health perspective and just like from an energy perspective? 
He's got elbow issues, wrist issues. He's had these ailments that have kind of crept up. Is there a sense of like, maybe you should just, you know, like a running back, instead of taking all the hits, run out of bounds every once in a while. Or if you're a guy like Kyle, are you just wired in a way where you can't play any other way? I think he is. And I think if you watch him even back to Villanova, that's just the way he plays. And I don't know, other than managing minutes, but it goes back to you manage the best, you know, the second best player on the team's minutes that hinders your, you know, rate to success. That that might be the difference between a loss and a win, which might be the difference between making, the, you know, like, so every game matters as much as people say, oh, every game, they take games off. Every game matters when you're playing for home court advantage in the playoffs. And I don't know how you tell a player like that, like, what do you say? Like, oh, don't go as, don't play as hard as you playing. Because that's him. That's what, <laughs> yeah. that's what makes him louder. That's what got him the money he got. That's what got him to being an all-star. You know what I'm saying? It's not like he's some high flyer dunking on people that's going to make sports center every night. He's someone's going to play hard, play the right way. You know, some games he's going to score 30, some games he's not. But he's going to affect the game if he's in the game. And I think you just got to live with it. If the Golden State guys are, are able to play that long and, and be healthy heading into um, the playoffs and the finals, you know, it's a testament to how deep they are and how many players they have, but I think the Raptors have that now. So, you know, we'll see how they look compared, you know, now compared to the playoffs, but there's nothing you could do other than managing his minutes. And you kind of help that by playing him with Van Vliet. He gets off the ball, like we talked about. You know, they play a lot of minutes together, and that's that's not normally league to play your backup and, and your, uh, you know, starting point guard. You know, only a few teams do it, but you also have DeLon Wright who you're able to throw in there when, when you need to, if one of them aren't playing well. So they have a lot of options to, to go to lineup wise. That's just being deep. That's being a deep team. He's going to be an all-star again. He might very well start again. Cause to me it's between him and Kemba, another big East guard who's having a monster year. Right. And I hope he gets there because he and Kyle, I'm talking about earned kind of everything that he's got in the league. He's kind of worked for it, but he has the least all-star friendly actual game. Like mm-hmm. the, all of his, all the things that make him great don't actually translate to an all-star game. So right. I hope he gets there and I hope he doesn't play that much. Cause he's not that fun to watch <laughs> in an all-star game. Who is the team in the East that you think is the biggest hurdle for the Raptors? The team that would give them the most problem. That's tough because I want to say Milwaukee hmm. because they're, you know, Giannis, obviously, but adding Kawhi in there, who is another player that that gives players fits. You know, I don't see him locking Giannis down. Mm -hmm. Um, He's having an MVP year. I don't think anyone's locking him down. But top three teams, obviously, the Raptors, Philly, Boston. But it's tough. I think any one of those teams, you just got to look at matchups and who's playing well at the time. I mean, Boston's not playing well right now, but do you really want to get matched up with them in the playoffs? No, you know. But you're going to have to go through one of those teams. Being the Raptors, you have to go through Philly, Boston, or Milwaukee, or two of them, you know, to get to where you want to be, and that's a championship. So either way, you're going to have to beat two of those three teams if everything plays out the way, you know, everyone expected to. Well, actually, the way the stands have been for a minute, and I'm going to say this and jinx it, but <laughs> they've set up, and obviously the Raptors are, are in first, they've set up with Milwaukee, and Philly in the 2-3 spot. And Boston has been so bad. They've actually been in the 6th spot. So right, since right. the NBA doesn't recede, which is another thing I don't really get. Well, I mean, I do get it. It's for TV purposes. But since they don't recede, you could end up with a bracket of 
all three of those other teams on the other side and the Raptors playing Orlando and Charlotte and teams like that all the way to the conference finals, <laughs> which could be crazy. Before I let you go, I want you to break down what you've seen from your old team in the Lakers. And we were talking about this a bit off air and what you've seen from LeBron in his transformation to wearing kind of the Lakers mm-hmm. purple and gold. Yeah, it's definitely weird to see LeBron wearing, you know, a Laker jersey. And essentially it's a, a brand new team. LeBron, Lance, you added five or six new guys. Rondo, so, JaVale. Right. So it's tough to to judge. Obviously, I watched the first couple games and LeBron looked different to me. And as a fan watching, because that's the way I've been, you know, watching these games is like, oh, he doesn't look the same. You know, we're we're watching him come off one of the most amazing seasons we've seen from a player ever. And, you know, watching him in the game, not looking at stats, like, oh, something's, you know, something's not the same as last year. But then you look at the stats at the end of the game and he has his 27, 9, and 6. He's still getting his stats. And I just think he's a mix of figuring out the team and making everyone else comfortable because LeBron's LeBron. He doesn't need to get comfortable. You know, he, he doesn't need that. But you have a bunch of young guys who are playing mixed with some vets, so... It's tough. Their first instinct, I think everyone's first instinct is to defer to LeBron when things get tough. You know, like, oh, we're down five with a minute left here, LeBron. And he's trying to, I think, bring them along and not go through that because I think that's what he went through in Cleveland. Rightfully so. You know, uh, he's the best player, like we talked about. If you're the best player, you're making the plays. Our best chance is for you to have the ball the most. And, you know, I think he's trying to get them to a point where end of the game it's not LeBron making every play it's LeBron Kuzma making plays uh Ingram everybody and he talked about that I think in the media balancing whether just to take over and and win the game by himself because we've seen him do it and deferring a little bit to those guys and seeing who he could trust in the regular season because when the playoffs come it's do or die as we've seen last year you you win the first game of a series that's huge you lose it that could be a sweep you know what i'm saying and i think they'll probably make some moves i don't know for sure obviously i'm not there to know the vibe and everything i just see the rumors like everybody else but um things change so quickly you know start of the season we're looking at them as like oh they're, they're not, they might not make the playoffs and now you know they go on a winning streak and you know now everyone's oh can they beat the warriors can they do this and you know, I think that's just what the NBA is. It's up and down. People get, you know, we as players get hung up on, we lose five games in a row. It's like, damn, you know, season's over. You know, like the extreme. And then we win five games. It's like, oh, we can win the champion. You know what I'm saying? So I think as players, fans, the league in general get hung up on what's going on right now. And the playoffs start in, I don't even know what, five months from now. So, so much could change. And I just said this last year with Cleveland, I just never bet against LeBron being the best player in the league. He could essentially, you know, if it comes down to them winning the last nine out of 10 to make the playoffs, are, am I willing to bet money that they won't? No. <laughs> you know what, you know what I'm saying? So we'll see how they end up. And I just think he has good pieces. I just don't know what the final roster will be, especially with the whole free agency coming along and, and whatnot. So there's just a lot of other variables that I think could change the dynamic of what the Lakers are doing. Here's something that's not going to change. Uh, Canada basketball going to the World Cup mm-hmm. secured the uh, qualification after a huge win against Brazil in Brazil going away and with a squad of guys because partially 
of pro commitments, partially because of health and in mm -hmm. the case of, of yourself, obviously a squad of guys that were kind of depth guys, kind of the, the team was pooled together. What does that qualification mean for the program? And, and were you kind of following throughout the process and, and, and talking to the guys who, who were competing? Yeah. I mean, it's huge. I think we really haven't done anything in a while in the sense of Canada basketball, just in what the talent we have, we expect to be competing for the Olympics. And we haven't been doing that at all, you know, since the Nash generation, I would say. And I just think we're, as fans, people are looking at how many players we have to choose from, but don't realize, you know, like for a player to play in the Brazil game or the uh, Venezuela game, they actually have to leave their team that pays their bills to go and play in that, you know? So that's a huge commitment. And, you know, whenever I talk to, you know, all the guys I know from playing with, playing against, whatever, you know, I tell them that's huge for you to sacrifice leaving your team, whether you're in Holland, you're playing for the Raptors on 05, you know, everybody's in different places and you're sacrificing a week off that you could be spending relaxing, you know, regenerating for the last part of the season and you're doing it and, and playing for your country. So that's huge. I think that's huge. And I think a lot of people were uh, showing them a lot of love, social media, and whatnot, just because they got the job done. And uh, whether it's the star NBA players or not, I think Canada has talent. We have a bunch of guys playing Europe, playing G League, playing the NBA. And, you know, luckily a lot of them are uh, are able to play and, and get it done. So, um, you know, it just goes to show, you know, without any NBA, current NBA players, they were able to, to go to Brazil and win, which is not easy. Throughout the process, high school guys, Kadre Gray, a youth sports guy, Obviously, guys who've, who've played in the NCAA and then G League guys and then when available, NBA guys and pro guys from, from Europe as right. well. Have you, and obviously you just want to get back to playing mm -hmm. healthy basketball mm -hmm. anywhere. Yeah, yeah. But have you allowed to imagine and think what it would be like if you get the chance to play in a World Cup in China or play in an Olympics? Is that something that you can actively think about? Yeah, I mean, I played for Team Canada on the... Um the pre-qualifiers, what, two years ago, I believe. And it's fun, man. I mean, it's a different feeling to play for. It kind of reminds me of college where there's so much, so much heart and so much fan base around you when you're playing these games. You're playing for a country, you know, and it sounds simple, but when you grew up in that country, you watch these games, you go in against a, a, another country who's, you know, fighting for everything. And it's just a great experience to get back around the people I grew up against, you know, grew up with and go against somebody else. And, um, you know, I think we all love playing for Canada and playing and putting on for the country we grew up in. I think it's just tough. We've had so many young guys. Essentially, like we have a really young team, a young group of like uh, NBA players and college guys. So it's always been a matter of not having everybody available, whether it's contracts, the one year I was injured, um, a couple guys, oh, rookie year, we got to go to summer league, whatever it is, we haven't really had everybody playing. And will we ever get that? Who knows? You know, there's always something going on, injuries, whatever it may be. But I just think um, for us to qualify is huge. And we'll see uh, see who's put together, what they put together for next year. And hopefully, you know, we just continue winning. And I think even, even when we don't play, like I didn't obviously didn't play in this last window, but I'm happy as, as much as I would be if I didn't play. And I think everybody's just the uh, supports building 
through the players. And I don't think that was there five, ten years ago, just the support. And, you know, I think that's why more and more and more guys are starting to play for Team Canada again. Lastly, before I let you go and thank you again, there's a lot of young kids, and I've seen you speak to them, who are trying to follow the exact footsteps and blueprint that, that you've kind of laid out coming out of this country, getting opportunities, blowing up on the scene, being a big player in the NCAA, and then getting your, your name called and, and being drafted. And I think for some of the younger, not that you're by any means old, but, but some, <laughs> some of the, the, the really young fans who, who are just kind of listening, watching and about basketball, I don't think people realize like how much you were the man at Syracuse. <laughs> Like you had a run. I, I don't. I, 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 I've never told you the story. Your only year at Syracuse. Who'd you get that? Big, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. That big game winner. Yeah. From like what was it? Like forty-five feet, something like that. Ennis. Two seconds. He'll get a shot off on the way. Got it. He hit it. He hit the shot. Syracuse wins it. Syracuse at the buzzer. Now they are going to have to go by rule and look at it. It certainly looked like he got it off to us. 58-56, Tyler Ennis. Goodness gracious. And this is why Jim Beheim continues to go to this guy over the stretch. He's the guy most capable of advancing, and he knows he's watching the clock the whole way up. He knows he's got about three dribbles and money for the freshman. Wow, goodness gracious. And then you kind of ran off the court, and... You're on Sports Center all over the place. They were selling the the Iceman yeah, shirts yeah, all yeah, over yeah. the place. Still, so, didn't get, still didn't get a cut of that, but we'll talk about that. Honestly, day. right? <laughs> That's what I was saying. Like, yo, you need a cut of that. I mean, LeBron's now doing like documentaries, like the student athlete documentary, right, right, talking right, about yeah. the fact that college kids get a cut. But what we're talking about is you had a bunch of games in a row where you hit big shots, made big plays late, and in and around Syracuse, got that nickname, the Iceman. Mm-hmm. And they started printing shirts with your 11 on it, a Canada flag on the back. So it was like, there's no yeah, question. Yeah, there's no doubt that who it's me. talking about <laughs> with this with the Iceman. And uh, and I know because like I had one. Me and my now wife was my girlfriend at the time. We went to Syracuse to watch. We're like, there's a Canadian there. Mm-hmm. We, we got to come through. We went to watch a game. I think it was the Duke game. Oh, that's so a good one. The then. tickets were crazy, and. Um, it was like it was around like Valentine's mm-hmm. time, so that so that's why I knew my wife was like ride or die that she's willing to spend <laughs> Valentine's, like, Day Valentine's watching college basketball in the Carrier Dome. Like it was nice, like we're watching a Canadian play, but it was a trip that there's so many people in this football stadium, all like repping like a Tyler Ennis jersey or right. T-shirt that you didn't get a cut of. But anyways, there's so many kids now trying to follow that exact same path, and I, I've. Heard you talk to them about the work and the different levels of work at every level you need to put in, even to the point where you're in the NBA and you're you're kind of working out with a, a guy who you're close to in IT and Isaiah Thomas, mm-hmm. trying to get better. For the young kids who have seen the finished product or the, the close to finished product, because you're you're not finished yet, let them know the amount of work that it takes to kind of get to that point. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it starts in high school, I would say. The seriousness, like I was always serious about making this NBA, you know, since I can remember. But I would say the business side of it in a sense of you're really starting to play for what you're going to do for the rest of your life in high school. And um, 
you know, it's just really hard to say anything other than being lucky and being, you know, I was a hard worker. I worked on my game a lot. I handled my schoolwork and I was lucky enough to go to a school in Syracuse where I played a lot. I think a lot of people in the world have talent to play basketball. You know, there's a lot of people that aren't in the NBA or getting paid to play basketball that are really good. And the difference is just like realizing everybody's path is different. You know, I could look at coming up, say I'm looking at Corey Joseph's path. You know, well, he went to Finley Prep and then he went to Texas for a year. Then he went to the NBA. He won a championship. Then he got paid and played. Like <laughs> I could like in my mind and I still do stuff like this where it's like, you know, I want to do that. So, oh, he went to Finley. I got to go to Finley. Oh, he went to Texas. I got to go. But everyone's path is different. And the reason I think we do that as kids is because we don't know what it takes to get there. We don't know if I'm, oh, he went to Texas. I'm going to Texas State. Is that still going to get me to where he is? So we follow what we see. And, you know, I think if anyone could get to Syracuse and play for, you know, a championship every year and play in the ACC, I think that puts you on the biggest stage possible. But saying that not everybody goes to Syracuse some guys go to a Canadian college and then plays in Europe and then plays for the best team in Europe and then makes it to the league like everyone's path is so different that you just got to focus on yourself and not so much focus on the stuff you can't control because you'll drive yourself crazy and even as an NBA player is the first time I noticed is that I could be killing in practice I could be doing everything right and you could be doing everything wrong and you might play over me, and that's just what it is. I can't control that any more than coming to practice every day, putting in the extra work, being a good teammate, all the stuff that they preach to you as a kid, and you just got to wait for your opportunity and sleep, and take advantage of it. And that's what they, that's another saying in the league is that everyone's going to get a chance, and it's whether you take advantage of it and make something of it or you go out there and you're you're not playing for a month and you pout, you don't work on your game. And so finally you get thrown in the game and you're out of shape or you forgot the plays or you mess up this rotation and you never get that chance again. So everyone gets a chance, whether it's starts in practice, starts in games, you just got to stay ready. And that's something I pride myself on just because I've been in a lot of shitty situations in the NBA as far as rotations and a guy gets injured and I'm supposed to play, but it's like, hey, we got to play this guy because of whatever reason, you know? And I'm always, I'm never going to make them look at me like, yo, he wasn't playing. And then we put him in and he didn't do nothing. See, that's, see, like, that's why we're not playing him, whatever it is. So whenever I went out there, I tried to prove and make the coach look stupid. Like, yo, I didn't play for, there was a stretch last year where I wasn't playing. Wasn't playing as much as I would like, I would say that. And then finally something happened. And right before the Houston game, they go, all right, you're starting. You got Chris Paul. And <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So if I'm not playing 40 minutes a game, I'm not in the shape, you know what I'm saying? You're not supposed to be in the shape to play 40. Right. But I prided myself on, all right, whenever I get this chance, I'm going to go out and kill. And I played one of my best games last year, and I ended up playing 40 minutes. It's like a double overtime game, something crazy. But, like, they're like, yo, you know, um, they're telling me, oh, we're proud of you, but they're also telling the other young guys, like, oh, see how Tyler was ready? Like, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, you know, that's my job to be ready. That's what I get paid to do. And as a kid, I think it stems back to high school. I could be kid that's not playing in high school not playing at all but you wait to that last game of the season and you get 40 going into the next year a coach is like oh we might have something in them so it's always staying focused if you can't control it don't worry about it you know what i'm saying and that's something that i kind of live by in basketball in life you know if a building burns down and i live in it i can't control that i, I just gotta figure out what, what i'm gonna do next how right. i'm gonna how i'm gonna keep myself going you know what i'm saying and i think i i another 
thing from basketball that I learned that I applied to life. So I would say that staying ready, working hard, obviously the stuff everyone talks about, but, and then realizing that nobody's, nobody's path is the same. Uh, you might do two years and enter the draft and it might be better if you do four and go lower in the draft and go to a team that needs you. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. you never know. Everyone's path is different and just kind of taking your story and run with it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a mantra and ethos that's applicable. I mean, not just a ball. It could be in this industry. It could be anything in life. It's not just getting the opportunity. It's when you got the opportunity, were you ready? Right. Were you prepared to take advantage of it? And, and it's interesting you mentioned the past being different. The thing people should mirror is not necessarily the path, but the work, mm-hmm. the sweat equity that it took along that path, along that journey. When you're in Phoenix and, you know, working late night, you got Isaiah Thomas, who's a second round pick, mm-hmm. who eventually ends up being a guy who's in the MVP conversation. Right. Got Eric Bledsoe, who went to Kentucky and was a first round pick. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's still working and, you know, now he's on a team that might win a championship. Right. And you've got yourself, the kid from Canada, who goes and plays in the ACC mm-hmm. and is there for one year, right? You've got all of these guys with totally different paths, but they're still there 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night putting in the work like right. that's what you should take from that not how they got to the league yeah and that's what it's about and you know it's it's easy to say you work hard but there's always somebody working out working out every time i would think uh kind of being paranoid even before i met it i love that video staying paranoid essentially the video was like every year there's 60 kids getting drafted every year there's undrafted guys getting signed so what's gonna separate me from these kids every year 60 kids no matter what you know, the NBA could be the best league ever, the worst league, but 60 kids are getting drafted, you know, by these 30 teams. And, you know, what's going to keep me continuing to make money on this level, continuing to play at this level? And it's staying paranoid that someone else is working harder than me, you know, so they're going to be ready more than me. So when I when I do get my chance, I might think I'm ready, but this guy's way more ready. So, he's gonna, you know, he's going to go out there and outplay me. Now my chance is gone, you know what I'm saying? So staying paranoid is another saying or, or mantra that, I think is huge, you know, in basketball. For sure. Well, they, this is a good option for us to have, for you to come and spit some knowledge about the game and about your path. Thanks for coming through, my dude. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. So that was the man they call Iceman in Syracuse. I call him Point God because he plays the point so well. If you want to holler at him, his handle on Twitter, at Tyler Ennis. Mine is at Donovan Bennett. We always love your feedback. It's not just me. This is a collective. J.D. Bunkus at J.D. Bunkus is still giving you his basketball take, so make sure you give him a follow. And at Amandelich, the super producer who is the man behind the ones and twos for this very program. Holler at us with ideas, potential guests. We got a lot of good guests lined up for you, both current and former Raptors. JYD, Charlie V, Freddie V. Stay tuned to this space right here. Like, share, subscribe, rate, tell your friends. This is Free Association. Thanks for hanging with us.